Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. Just gets better and better. There's no turning back now. Forty of us sitting together is a beautiful thing. And walking outside and just settling. Forty human beings. Consider that. That's um. 8,000 limbs, 800 limbs, no, 1,600. That's 8,000 bones. And zillions of thoughts, all settling and being absorbed by the breath and by trees, especially oak trees, and um, by the river. So this afternoon I wanted to talk about um, love, death, and oak trees. Um, There's a famous story that I've been thinking about all day, uh, where a monk named Joshu is asked, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from China? And Joshu responds, the oak tree in the courtyard. So this needs a little unpacking. (laughs) First of all, let me tell you about Joshu. He was born in 1797, and he lived for 120 years. When he was 18 years old, he started studying with a teacher named Nansen, and uh, studied very closely, and then had a really deep experience uh, of awakening that completely shifted uh, his whole life. I was saying in an interview this morning that uh, my teacher used to call this uh, the taste that turns you around. Maybe you intuit this uh, on the retreat. Uh, Once in a while, you have some insight. And once in a while, the insight is so powerful that it's a taste uh, that turns you around. That says, you know, some, some of these dead end streets I've been wandering are just, it's not. 
it's not worth it anymore. Um, so he had this experience, and uh, then my favorite part of this is after he had this really deep experience, he started traveling in China trying to find the best teachers so that he could polish his understanding. You know, in America, when someone has a big experience, they become a teacher and they write books and go on Oprah. (laughs) But actually, uh, traditionally, there are many stories of people having these big shifts. And then the next line is always, and then they go on and study for 40 more years with the teacher (laughs) to integrate it. And then uh, he got tired when he turned 80. (laughs) So he went to a temple in northern China called the Kuan Yin Temple, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, and he settled down there. And he taught for 40 years. So if you were in yoga this morning thinking, I'm getting old, (laughs) you're actually just getting started. So that's Joshu, who is the, the monk here, the, 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 the person responding to the monk. Um, and Joshu is my favorite a character in old Zen literature because uh, 10% of all the koans, all these Zen stories you've heard about in collections, uh, the Gateless Gate, the Blue Cliff Record, 10% of all the, the koans are all his koans, stories about Joshu. And most uh, Zen literature, if you've read uh, much Zen literature or heard Zen stories, is really dazzling and sparkling and extraordinary. And the best thing about Joshu's stories is they're really ordinary and really plain. The most famous one is a monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Joshu says, no. Or a student comes to Joshu (laughs) and says... Um, how do I really learn how to practice? And Joshu says, uh, go wash your bowls. <laughs> the first time I heard that koan was uh, from an, an Englishman. And I, I swore he said, go wash your balls. LAUGHTER <laughs> But it actually works either way. (laughs) The second character in the story is an oak tree. And uh, temples traditionally were um, always built near a tree, an important tree. Uh, Actually, this is not just true in Asia or in India. This is also true in Europe. Uh, If you travel in Europe and go visit old sanctuaries and old temples, old uh, uh, places of worship, they were often built around a sacred grove. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to remember that because we often think, oh, they built the temple and then they planted a grove. But usually it was the other way around. There was some sacred land and they uh, started practicing there or doing ceremony there and someone had the idea of, well, let's just, you know, start sleeping here and put up walls and roof. And the third character in this story is Bodhidharma. I don't know how many of you have heard the name of Bodhidharma, 
uh, Bodhidharma is uh, famous for bringing uh, Chan uh, from India to China. Uh, in uh, early Buddhism, the, the, one of the words for meditation is dhyana or dhyan. And when that uh, word gets carried over to China, it becomes the word chan, which then in Japanese becomes the word zen. And it just means meditation. So Bodhidharma was this character who traveled across the desert in China, uh, from India to China, uh, to bring what he called the meditation school of Buddhism to China. And this was at a time where Buddhism was going through some growing pains, which I think it is now, actually, again, where there's so much debate between sects, so much intellectual understanding. Everybody was reading Pima Chodron books, and nobody was practicing. So Bodhidharma shows up to bring back the spirit of just sitting down and sitting still. And funny enough, that spirit was sitting down and sitting still at the foot of trees. That's the tradition. Now all of us, we sit in rooms, you know. And, uh, but when the Buddha talked about meditation, for any of you who have studied the early suttas, he always says, cross your legs and sit at the foot of a tree. He never says, like, make sure the meditation hall is set up in such and such a way. And actually, we live in a province where you can do this. And who doesn't feel more peaceful when they're sitting under a tree? Who doesn't feel more peaceful? As long as it's not black fly. <laughs> so anyways, uh, there's a famous story of Bodhidharma. When he came to China, he was invited. He was sponsored by an emperor named Emperor Wu. And the emperor said to him one day, um, what is the essence of Buddhism? What's the essence? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And confused, the emperor then looks him in the eye and says, well, then who are you? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. Most of us, if they, someone said to us, you know, what is the core of Buddhism? You would uh, say, oh, well, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Six of This, the Four of This. You go on a retreat, you sit really, really still, and food's okay. <laughs> but Bodhidharma is like Sudana in the story I told on Friday night, picking up the blade of grass right away. And he responds directly and says, actually, the core of this whole practice I don't know. There's another version of the story where he responds, unholy nothing. And then the emperor says to him, well, who are you? And he's not saying, I don't know. He's saying, I can't know. I can't know. I can't know. All of us, we're working so hard to find out what the meaning of life is what decision I should make, who am I really. But actually, you don't know. What's that like?
What's it like to have I don't know as your posture? What's it like to breathe in I don't know and breathe out I don't know? It would be nice to have uh, fewer experts and more leaders in our society who don't know. Because secretly they don't know. <laughs> so anyways, in this story about the oak tree, uh, a monk says to uh, Joshu, um, what's the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from China? It doesn't mean, like, why did he come from China? It means, what's the, what's the purpose of us sitting here and doing this practice that was brought over? Like, what's the purpose of this whole lineage? Have you wondered that at all? Have you sat here at all in the past couple of days and said, what is the point? Or have you seen someone walking along really slowly? What are we doing? <laughs> this is so absurd. Yeah. There's a funny story I like to tell of every year we have a New Year's retreat uh, uh, that I teach uh, just north of Toronto on this huge piece of land. It's 3,000 acres on the Y Marsh, um, Georgian Bay. And uh, we do the walking outside under the stars in the snow. And uh, slow, slow walking like we're doing here. And near the retreat center there's a farmhouse where I stay with the family who owns the, the center. Uh, they have a little boy at the time he was five. And uh, one New Year's, uh, the moon was really full, and uh, he looked out the window and saw all these people walking slowly, and he freaked out, and he ran in to see his mom, and he's like, Mom, zombies! <laughs> so what's the meaning of all this? So this is a really profound koan, think about this. A monk says to Joshu, what is the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this meditation? What's the meaning of all this? And Joshu says, the oak tree in the courtyard. The oak tree in the courtyard. That's the meaning of this. <coughs> so I've been thinking about this a lot because I don't know if you've noticed, but there is an enormous oak tree <laughs> in the courtyard. Um, the purpose of these stories is uh, to remind you that there are times in your practice where you'll have a really big question. And the purpose of the teaching, and the purpose of the teacher, and the purpose of the practice is to take your questions and drive them deeper. To respond to your questions in a way that drives them deeper. So that your body becomes, I don't know. So that your body becomes an oak tree. One of the beautiful things about practicing near trees is that nature is doing 90% of the work, 90% of the teaching. So all the teacher has to do is just point. 
There's the oak tree. That's you. The Buddha uh, was born under a tree. When he was uh, young and he was doing yoga practices, uh, the final practice that he did was fasting. And apparently he became so thin that one day uh, he touched his navel and he could feel his spine and realized if he kept fasting, uh, he would kill himself. That, that, that wasn't going to get him free. And he was completely defeated. And then he had a memory of being a young boy. And his father took him to an agricultural fair. And he was upset by the way that animals were treated. So he left the fair by himself and went off and lay under a tree and looked up at the sky in an orchard. And he, he remembered that this was his most peaceful time. Does anybody have an experience like this where you remember as a kid lying down, looking up at the sky? His father nearby? And so he went, that's why he went to sit under a tree. And that's where he decided to sit down and not get up until he resolved dukkha, his experience of lack. The Buddha taught almost all of his, uh, gave almost all of his teaching under trees. When he created a community that eventually had roots, it was always in groves. And the Buddha died under two trees, between two sal trees. So trees are really a very important uh, practice. And nowadays, more than ever, maybe, trees are an important practice because trees are the lungs of this planet. They've given us incredible buildings. And they drop seeds that are really important uh, to nourish. In Thailand, uh, factories are uh, spreading all over the country, especially since the 1970s. In 1925, something like 79% of Thailand was old-growth forest. And in uh, 1990, it's 15, it was 15%. And if any of you have, have spent time in Thailand, you also know that whenever uh, factories come in and uh, um, bulldoze forests, uh, the next thing that comes in is heroin and amphetamines. And this is the real struggle with uh, traditional communities in Thailand. So some Thai Buddhist monks and nuns uh, needed to find a way to stop this because they saw their communities being devastated by the market and the drugs that flowed from uh, this market growth. So they decided to do something that became very controversial in the last decade, which is they decided to ordain trees. So you know the monks were saffron monks' robes. Everybody knows what those look like. They're really bright. So they decided to take the rituals, the ceremony, of uh, making someone into a priest. And they decided to start ordaining trees. 
So they would have the whole ceremony around the tree, and then they would tie a saffron robe around the tree. And then, whenever school kids or business people were walking, whenever you saw an old-growth tree with the saffron robe, you stop and you bow to it out of a sign of respect. And this worked. Because then, when the people came in with chainsaws, uh, the community wouldn't stand for it because they saw the tree in a different way. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to do with this tree? We should have a ceremony with this tree because it's been looking after us. So there's nothing more peaceful than meditating close to a tree. Even if any of you have Kindle, when you turn your Kindle on, the logo for Kindle is a person reading a book under a tree. It look, if you look at first, it looks like the Buddha sitting under a tree. But when you look a little closer, they're reading a book. If you really want to take in a tree, you have to use the same technique as meditation practice. Is you have to take in the experience without looking for meaning. One of the things that kills meditation practice is sitting to try and figure out what everything means. Do you know what I'm talking about? What does this mean? And you plug in a narrative. So one of the first techniques in meditation is to feel your breathing at the level of sensation without creating meaning. It's a practice that uh, transcends meaning. It doesn't reinforce meaning. And secondly, when you sit, you don't try and fix things. Because all of us are so psychological, when we sit down to meditate and we have troubles, which are great to have. When you have troubles, the tendency is to, to feel what's happening and then to try and fix it, to try and work it out. Well, I've got three days here. I can sit still, and I'm just going to work this one out. <laughs> and if that's the attitude on Sunday when we have a check-in, people say at the end, well, you know, I came with this problem. I didn't really work it out. You know? And, and you, can, you can see on their face that you know, uh, they're still working out what they came in with on Friday. Right in the middle of your problems, you practice not knowing. Tears will come, and right in the middle of the tears, there's no tears. This is just what's happening. Joy will come. When you least expect it, joy shows up. And right in the middle of the joy, there's no joy. It's just what's happening. So that's what's meant by the oak tree in the courtyard. Just point to the oak tree. The oak tree is being an oak tree. How can you be yourself? Be fully in your life, just like the oak tree is in his or her life. We talk a lot about impermanence. 
For those of you who've sat in this room before, you've probably heard hundreds of talks about impermanence. But one of the things I think we forget sometimes about the teachings of impermanence is that impermanence means you're going to have to lose something. That's the way it goes. And meditation practice clears a space so that you can mourn the loss of what you're grasping. Hopefully with some elegance. Like, that's one of the things I like so much about the tree, is um, it has dignity, stature. You don't even really need an altar in this room, because there's a tree in front of a river, in front of a mountain. (laughs) When I was uh, 21, I took a month-long retreat. Um, and uh, I, I did retreat on an island in British Columbia called Savory Island which is this really small island at the time it had no electricity and no cars there was one car on the island it was a police car and once a month the police would take the boat over drive the car around park it and leave yeah. Which was kind of funny because everybody, everybody uh, uh, grew pot on the island. <laughs> um, and that island had amazing trees. And a friend of mine uh, named Everest, she, uh, she built a tree house. Uh, she was going to architecture school. And uh, she built a tree house on this island as her first... Pr- she was actually in art school. And she won an award, she won $7,000 when she was graduating from Emily Carr. And my father's an architect. And when Everest met my father, she was so inspired that he was an architect. She'd never met an architect. A grant's an architect, by the way. She had never met met an architect. Um, And uh, so she decided right away she she was going to be an architect. So her first thing was building this treehouse. So I said, when the treehouse is done... Um, I'll come there and, and, and sit in it for a month. <laughs> that was the deal. <laughs> Ho- hoping she would think that's a cool thing. <laughs> so anyways, I sat in the, in the treehouse, and uh, I had an alarm clock, and I had a schedule, like a monastic schedule, and I woke up really early and did sitting, walking, sitting, walking, breakfast, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, and so on through the day. After lunch was the best time, uh, like it is on this retreat. And uh, uh, at lunch, after I ate, I would walk around the whole island. And it took like, I think, an hour and 45 minutes or something uh, to walk around the whole island. Uh, Rain or shine, whatever. And uh, the first uh, days I was there, I was so sad. At first I was lonely. What am I doing alone? Uh, And... uh, then I was so sad, and then eventually it became crying, you know, real tears. And, uh, 
And so I'd sit and I'd have all these... Uh, I had been, been seeing a psychotherapist. And so I had all these psychotherapy stories, you know, like about my father and my childhood and all these things playing. You know. yeah, but it didn't do anything. Like I had all these really good stories. And after a couple of days of sitting with the sadness, I kind of started running out of stories. Has anybody had this experience yet? You're, like, you're trying to find something, you know, but like, there's, there's no more stories, so you go to pop songs. Yeah. Adele is a popular place to go. Someone like you. So anyways, um, uh, I was really suffering. And, and, and I was walking, uh, I was on the fourth or fifth day of the retreat, and I was walking around the, the island, and then something started happening where the ocean looked sad. And the sound of the seagulls, do you know that sound? It was like the, the saddest sound. I mean, people call this anthropomorphic projection, but it was real. The, and the trees in... If you go to a, it, you don't see it so much here, but in BC you really see that the trees are all bent from the winds from the ocean, and they looked so sad. All these trees hunched over. You know, in the rain, they looked like they were all crying with bad posture. <laughs> and um, so, anyways, uh, the sadness was really intense. The whole world was sad, and then I, I, I. I saw my mind grasping for a story to explain, to explain the sadness. And I couldn't find a story. I couldn't find a story. I remember walking. I was up to my knees in the water, upset, trying to find you know, something. And then I cried like I did when I was a boy. And it lasted for about 30 seconds. And then after, I felt clean. Does anybody remember this when you're a kid and you cry really hard? And then after, there's this feeling like the pipes have been cleaned out. Do you remember this? I don't know if anyone still gets I don't get that anymore. But I got, I got it then. And, um, and then it stopped. That was it. And when I was crying... I had this experience where it was just pure sadness and it was the sadness of uh, human beings, birds, sadness of trees, sadness in the ocean. It wasn't personal. And it completely shifted how I think about my life. Because I saw that for four days... I was keeping the sadness going by telling story and after story after story about it. But actually, even though I really believed, and if anyone said to me, the story isn't why you're sad, I didn't believe it. The story was the fact of my sadness. And then I saw that it wasn't, it wasn't actually. Maybe there's a story of something that's happened to you that is a factor in some of your suffering, but it's not the cause of your suffering. There's suffering. There's sadness. And it's human. 
And it's really good if you can feel that. But the stories that we add to it turn it into something that's a tormenting and gives the sadness a longevity that's unnecessary. So when you sit, you need to let your stories die. Sometimes when I sit, I think to myself, I'm dying. I don't, you might hear this and think, oh, that's so depressing or whatever. He should go to a Sharon Salzberg workshop <laughs> and practice more love. And, you know. But actually, um, sometimes I say to myself, just let yourself die. When you exhale, just exhale as if you're dying. Just let the whole burden you know, that we're carrying die. And then you can trust something deeper. It's interesting, the word tree etymologically comes from the same root as trust. Maybe as we get closer to being trees. I don't mean like you drop acid and you become a tree. <laughs> I mean you be in yourself the way the tree is in herself. When there's difficulty, there's just difficulty. You don't have to add on to it. Uh, there's another a translation of this story of Joshu and the oak tree. I wanted to read it also because um, it's, a, a, it's not as famous, but it's a really good uh, story. It goes like this. Um, a monk asked Joshu, what's the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? The West is China. Uh, India. Uh, Joshu says, uh, the oak tree in the garden. The monk, who's really strong, which I like about this version, says, wait, wait, that's not a good enough response. Joshu says, what do you mean? And the determined monk says, you're telling me about outward things. And I'm asking you about inward things. Your answer, the oak tree in the garden, was about something outside. My question is about what's happening inside. So I'm going to ask you again, what's the meaning of this? And Joshu says, the oak tree in the garden. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Because the first time the student hears it, he thinks that Joshu's actually talking about the oak tree in the garden. And the truth is, he is actually talking about the oak tree in the garden, but the experience of an oak tree in the garden is not outside. And it's also not inside. It's a strange thing with perception, isn't it? In the Abhidharma, uh, the, the sort of text on Buddhist psychology, it says that consciousness arises when an object and an eye come together. There's eye consciousness. 
And neuroscience nowadays says exactly the same thing. That the, percept, that the tree is actually inside your brain, but that you can't find it in your brain. It's inside and it's outside. Both those things. And maybe we need to be in the world a, a little more inside and outside. A little more intimate. Because when we just say, those are the trees over there, we really miss something important. And it makes us sick. And then when we miss it, we play video games. We invest in the market. We get busy with technology. But actually, it's making us really sick. And if you travel around the world and you visit um, First Nations people, uh, so much of their population is so sick because they've been divorced from their land, from their place. And it's easy to pretend it's not happening to everybody, but now it's catching up with everybody. Everybody's divorced from their place. <coughs> and it's making us uh, ill. So the oak tree in the garden is not a metaphor. <laughs> oh, it's a metaphor. I'm like a tree growing roots and wings. It's not. It's the real thing. Just like the sadness I was feeling was not a metaphor for something else. I wanted to read to you um, two things. Uh, oh yeah, get comfortable. Um, uh, last year in the Idle No More uh, movement, which was so inspiring for those of you tracking it or involved, um, there was a young woman who really emerged as a leader, I think, in that movement named Leanne Simpson. And uh, I wanted to read to you an excerpt from a conversation between uh, her and um, uh, journalist Naomi Klein. Um, Leanne says, I think for me it's always been a struggle because I've always wanted to live in British Columbia or the North because the land is so beautiful. She, she lives in uh, southern Ontario. It's easier emotionally for me to live in a beautiful place, but I've chosen to live in my territory, and I've chosen to be a witness of this. And I think that's where, in the politics of indigenous women and traditional indigenous politics, that this is really a politics based on love. So when I think of my land, when I think of the land as my mother, or if I think of it as a family relationship, I don't hate my mother because she's sick or because she's been abused. I don't stop visiting her because she's been in an abusive relationship and she has scars and bruises. If anything, you need to intensify the relationship because it's a relationship of nurturing and caring. 
And so I think my own territory, I try to have that intimate relationship. I try to have a relationship of love, even though everywhere I see damage. I still try to see the beauty that's there. There's a lot of beauty in Lake Ontario. It's a threatened lake and it's dying and no one will eat the fish. But there's a lot of beauty in the lake. There's a lot of love in the lake. And I think Mother Earth is my first mother and mothers have a tremendous amount of resilience. They have a tremendous amount of healing power. And I think this idea that you abandon it when something's been damaged is something we can't afford to do in Ontario. Naomi then says, uh, exactly, but this is a different kind of political project. My husband talks about how growing up beside a lake you can't swim in shapes your relationship with nature. You think nature is somewhere else. And Leanne says, if you can't swim in it, canoe across it. Find a way to connect to it. When the lake is so ruined that you can't swim in it or eat from it, that's when healing ceremonies come in. Because even when things are wrecked, you can still do ceremonies with it. I would love to read you this whole interview. It's really beautiful. But there are two uh, uh, key terms in this uh, conversation that have everything to do with the oak tree and your practice. One is a politics of love. That when you practice here, you're learning how to take care of yourself. And that's a political act. Planting the seeds of stopping and the seeds of resilience and the seeds of love. And the second thing that really touched me is this term, uh, intensifying relationships. When things are damaged, you intensify your relationship with it. You don't walk away from it. And I know some of you in interviews have said things like, oh, I thought I was over that. I can't believe it's still here. <laughs> so you intensify your relationship with it. Or another way of talking about this is you let yourself die. You let this self that's going around the world saying, tree, you know, uh, bad, damaged. You let that self die. Really die. In the moment. So you can intensify your relationship with what's actually happening. That's what we're doing in this room. We're intensifying our relationships. You know, if you let your body be open when you sit and you walk around this building, uh, you'll find that uh, people are not so annoying. <laughs> like if you're sitting next to a stranger at the table and you just relax your body and you just let them in, you'll notice that we, we, we have a kind of armor you know, around strangers. They don't eat how we eat. They don't breathe the way that we're used to people breathing. They don't wear the same unscented whatever. <laughs> but actually, you could go the other way, and you could let it in. Because uh, you're a tree now, 
and you have the stability that you can contain what you're actually feeling. And right underneath that aversion is love. And then we're practicing a politics of love together. It's called community. Includes this oak tree. The oak tree's practicing. So anyways, um, I want to end just reading one more thing. Um. I'm working on a book uh, about... uh, uh, It's kind of a memoir, actually. And um, uh, you might think I'm young to, to write a memoir, but... I'm writing a memoir about 10 years of my life, uh, from age 8 to 18, and uh, about some people close to me who died at that time. And uh, I'm interspersing it with stories of students of the Buddha who died and things that happened, and also the, ex- the experience of the Buddha's death. So uh, I've been rewriting stories from, from the Pali Canon. And uh, so I, I've been rewriting the story of the Buddha's death. Uh, so, so I just want to read you a little bit of this, and I'll end. Because uh, it has everything to do with letting go. Uh, you can close your eyes and listen. Oh, uh, if you don't know the story, the Buddha suffered his whole life uh, from ulcers. And uh, so uh, he went out uh, for a meal, and he was given some food. Uh, Nobody knows what it was. Some scholars say it was mushroom. Some say it was pork. Nobody knows. And uh, he thought that he just had had this uh, trouble with his uh, stomach. But uh, it turned out it was a poison. And uh, some scholars now are saying that it's possible that the Buddha was actually poisoned. Not that he had, had had bad food, but that he was purposely poisoned, mm. uh, which is a re- really interesting uh, idea. But anyways, um, he knew he was going to die, so he asked his right-hand man, Ananda, who he had known for 50 years, uh, to be with him and to take him between two trees um, and to, to keep him cool in the heat. Um, and then he died. Uh, so anyways, this is the, the story. In his last hours, uh, Gotama Buddha has sharp pains through his abdomen and up through his neck. He's in his 80s. His companion of 50 years, Ananda, puts water on his feet and holds his hand as the Buddha sweats and his abdomen cramps. Ananda goes back and forth to a nearby stream, hauling small jugs of water to the bedside. Imagine knowing someone for 50 years, someone who's for you, someone who has your back, someone you've loved and you've fought with, and inside the whole mess, they're still there, at your bedside, with a love deeper than either of you understand. It's a love deeper than what you can understand, because now you know for certain that you really don't understand much. The understanding isn't important. A day earlier, when he knew he was falling ill, the Buddha asked Ananda to prepare a couch for him in a sala grove 
between two trees with his head facing north. The Buddha is wearing fresh robes and his skin is tender. After lying motionless for four hours, he asks Ananda for water and needs help to raise the water up to his lips. Ananda's tears fall in the dust, making patterns in the sand like stucco. The evening air is warm and the Buddha slips in and out of consciousness as Ananda sprinkles water on the surface of his skin. The dark is thickening. These are the same pains the Buddha felt when he was in his thirties, suffering from ulcers. But they're different. They travel deeper, and Ananda knows this. Don't cry, the Buddha whispers to Ananda. Ananda looks at the Buddha's glossy eyes, flushed face, and feverish skin. His hands are cold and clammy to Ananda's touch. The Buddha says to Ananda, Now you need to live with yourself as an island, as a refuge, with nothing else as a refuge. You need to trust yourself. Ananda considers the Buddha's words and puts the water jug down. Ananda recalls that one should take refuge in the triple treasure, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. But now the Buddha is saying something entirely different. Take refuge in yourself, he says. How, Ananda asks. Ananda, be in your body just as a body. Be clear, aware, mindful, and do the same with feelings and thoughts. They are just feelings and thoughts. This is everything I've taught you. Everything that you cling to is passing away. The Buddha stops speaking and closes his eyes. He shifts to his right side and loosens his robe with his left hand. Ananda, everything breaks down. Tread the path with care. Ananda feels a calm he hasn't felt in 40 years, though he doesn't understand exactly what the Buddha means. How do you be an island to yourself? The pause at the end of the Buddha's exhale has been lengthening with each breath, and now it expands to fill the entire grove. Shadows curl around the low bed and the candle goes out. The hills are silent, and the silence drowns out all sounds. Ananda's tears well up, and so he squeezes the Buddha's hand. Ananda pictures the deaf student who came to visit the Buddha last month and the old woman who lost both of her sons. He remembers thinking that they needed to take care of themselves, that they needed to trust themselves, and how the Buddha gave them confidence in their own life, even when they were in pain. Over the next days, there will be a trickle of visitors to the grove where the Buddha died. Ananda will realize the Buddha's words. Everything breaks down. Tread the path with care. Nothing is certain. Trust yourself. Thank you very much.